Hi, this is Dr. Neil Nathan, and today we'll be mapping the limbic system on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. And today's episode has lots of links to share with you as well. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Neil Nathan. Dr. Neil Nathan is the author of the best-selling book, Toxic, on the subject of mold toxicity, Lyme disease, and multiple chemical sensitivities, and a medical practitioner for 50 years treating complex medical illnesses. His newest book is Energetic Diagnosis. In it, he explores how the limbic system is impacted commonly by mold toxicity and Lyme disease, and if not addressed early in the course of treatment, can make progress quite difficult. And that's exactly what we'll be exploring today. Dr. Nathan, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Oh, thank you for having me, Andrea. So the limbic system, it's certainly getting more attention in holistic and integrative and functional medicine circles as we gain a better understanding of the impacts of both stress and trauma on healing and the healing processes. Can you start us off by sharing what the limbic system is? Sure. Very simply, the limbic system is the part of the brain. It's a complex of the amygdala, several other brain nuclei, But the essential thing is that it's the part of the brain that monitors, controls, and manages emotion and sensitivity primarily. Has some other functions, but those are the biggies. So when patients present with symptoms referable to those areas, that's when we start thinking limbic. Mm -hmm. And when you say presenting symptoms, what are those symptoms? So anyone who presents with a change in anxiety, mood swings, depression, OCD, they may have had some before, but it has become worse or severe or inexplicable. It's not related to a stressor. It comes out of the blue. Think limbic. The other piece of that is sensitivities. Sensitivity to everything is governed by the limbic system. That means light, sound, touch, chemicals, food, EMF, any of those areas. If a patient tells you that they've become sound sensitive, light sensitive, chemicals are now bothering them. Again, think limbic. 
Interesting. And when we are seeing these patients who I think, as you and I well know, are often gaslit because these hypersensitivities aren't acknowledged as something, is there usually a trigger, like one infection? Could the trigger be from birth? Like, are there different triggers and what are the most common ones that you see that lead you to think limbic? Well, the biggies are toxins, infections, and stress. And it can be any toxin. However, in my experience, mold toxicity might be the most common. In terms of infections, the one that seems to trigger it the most is Lyme disease with the co-infection Bartonella. But other infections, such as chlamydial infections or mycoplasma infections, some viral infections, can trigger it as well. And then stress in any form. Which can also be those infections, right? We can have that physiological, psychological, all different kinds of stress. Well, in my clinic practice, it's all three. I will often get patients with Lyme and mold and stress. And each of them causes the other or predisposes to the other. So it can get complicated. Yeah, I think that's the point here that these things can get complicated. And this is where that focus on the limbic system, in my opinion, it kind of slows us down. It takes us to a core because we're not just pushing healing protocols. Remember that the limbic system is attempting to be protective so that it's increasing its scrutiny of or monitoring of our internal and external stimuli to protect us. It's not something that's making us sick intentionally. It's actually doing the opposite. It's intending to protect us. And often the sensitization of the limbic system starts earlier in life. It starts maybe with a traumatic birth, but it could start with a difficult childhood in any way, shape, or form, any type of abuse physical, sexual, emotional, any type of events that have happened, multiple hospitalizations, difficult relationships, any of those things begin the process of getting that limbic system to go, hmm, I don't think that's safe for you. So I'm going to have to monitor this even more closely. And eventually it can get to the point that it has become overprotective or hypervigilant so that it's reacting to things that it doesn't really need to, but then it begins to become a problem that we have to actually relate to and work with. Yeah, so interesting. When we think about those different areas that you mentioned as part of the limbic system, the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the cingulate cortex and the hypothalamus, Can you talk a little bit more into each of those and how they are in that both protective and hyperprotective mode? Well, they have different components, but I think that clinically that might not be the question we want to be asking. I think I'd rather talk about the interrelationships between the limbic system and other systems that clinicians want to be looking at. So first of all, and probably one of the most important things I'm going to say. In addition to the limbic system as a component of this monitoring process for stimuli, we have what we call the vagus nerve and the other cranial nerves as well, which Stephen Porges, who put this on the map, calls 
polyvagal theory. It's not really theory. It's a polyvagal monitoring process. So the vagus nerve, I'll call it that for simplicity, but it's more complicated than that. The vagus nerve works hand in hand with the limbic system very closely to do this monitoring. And often when people start to become aware of how important this is and treat it, what I want to emphasize is if you only treat the limbic system, if you have two systems that are hypervigilant and you quiet one, the other one does not quiet and you're still stuck. So one of the clinical issues that I see is that when practitioners only are focusing on the limbic system and they're not including vagal strategies, then often those patients aren't improving and vice versa. You also have to include limbic systems when you're doing vagal strategies because of the intimacy with which those two systems interact. And I'm going to throw in one more complicating variable. Mast cell activation is intimately connected to both of those. And each triggers the other. Each is intimately related to the other. So when you have a patient who is sensitive to anything, then you need to think limbic, vagal, and mast cell activation all at the same time, because if you don't quiet all of them, then again, the whole system can't reboot. That's pretty amazing to think about. That's some underlying work that needs to be done before we start overlaying healing protocols. Correct. This is about safety. And if the body doesn't feel safe on an organismic or cellular level, it can't heal. This is the work of Dr. Robert Navio on the cell danger response, which is a fabulous model for understanding the evolution of chronic illness. And that in response to, again, infection, toxin, or stress on a cellular level, extending to the whole organism on a cellular level, it shuts down to protect the cell until it feels safe again. And it can't come out of that until that safety occurs. So all three of those are absolutely essential in looking for, in terms of diagnosis and treating, because otherwise the interventions that we do aren't going to work because the, the cell, hence organism, is on survival mode. So you can measure low CoQ10 and low selenium. You can measure methylation dysfunction. You can measure and call it mitochondrial dysfunction. Well, it's all mitochondrial dysfunction because it's the mitochondria that are monitoring all of this. My point, which I think is very important, is that the interventions that we would use on someone who might be barely healthy or not that sick don't work in people who are really sick or really sensitive until we restore safety. Bingo, Dr. Nathan. That was the most important thing to say that I think, you know, I'm always trying to get across in the teaching. And it's so hard because we live in a quick fix culture and so many practitioners, coaches, and clinicians are looking for that quick fix as well. They want to say, here's what the condition is. Here's what I do. This person has mold. Here's what I do. And I think what you're saying here is that this underlying work, that level of safety has to be addressed in order for those interventions to do the work that we're hoping they will do. 
Exactly. So all of the interventions that practitioners may have learned for infections or for toxins of any kind aren't going to work well or at all until we take a step back and start looking at these safety issues. And, and I'm going to add, these have dramatically worsened in the last two years because of the global effects of COVID on the entire world. That I don't think we're fully acknowledged the PTSD that has occurred because of the way our world has changed. Yeah, thousand percent. And in fact, maybe even more explicitly for many of our healthcare workers who are on the front lines. I mean, what I'm seeing in the nurse population right now is really phenomenal in terms of, as you said, the PTSD. Exactly. So these are complicated, interwoven, and important things that people need to know about. I want to emphasize it again. I see so many patients that I consult with who have seen good integrative practitioners, but have gotten stuck on what I call downstream effects rather than on what's basic. What is making this patient sick primarily? That ought to be the question that ought to be asked. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. So I'm looking at some of your writing that I will link to in the show notes, but I just want to think about the center part of the matrix and all the things we might see arise. You've mentioned some of them, like those increased perceptions to light or sounds or EMF or touch or smell, um, those chemical smells people might be overreactive to, perfumes, new carpets, new car, uh, that kind of immediate response but also brain fog, fatigue, nausea, anxiety, a severe pain, anything else, mood swings that I'm missing in terms of thinking of like symptoms we might see that indicate, hey, stop, slow down, consider safety? I think those are the biggies. I think there are others. I mean, there's if we only looked at mast cell activation, virtually every system in the body is affected or potentially affected because we're all biochemically and genetically unique. So what might affect someone with shortness of breath or headaches might affect someone else as joint pain or muscle pain or cramping or muscle spasms, or someone else might be affected by bladder symptoms, a dysuria, dyspareunia, vulvovaginitis. Another person might be primarily fatigue, might be a cognitive impairment of different types, and very important, again, anxiety, depression, OCD, mood swings, almost any psychological issue can be triggered by this as well. The systems that can be affected are so ubiquitous that it's important to not kind of get in your head the idea that, oh, this is what I usually see when someone has that, because it can be virtually anything. Yeah, such a good point. Okay, I know you like to focus on how we move ahead. Now that we know this, how do we consider all the things, the vagal, the limbic? How do we do that in our practices? What should be our focuses first and foremost? What would be the interventions that help us move a patient forward? So my practice has evolved over many years to primarily treating patients who have become unusually reactive or sensitive. So if you can treat those patients, you can treat 
almost anyone. So if your listeners haven't seen too many of them yet, they will. If you're doing this work, eventually you're going to be seeing more and more of those sensitive patients. And again, in this COVID-laden world, in this toxic world that we live in, in this world that has all sorts of toxicity to it, that is increasing geometrically. And so if you haven't seen it, you're going to. So typically, the way I look at it, first I look at the limbic system. I will typically recommend either the Annie Hopper DNRS, the Dynamic Neural Retraining System, or the Ashok Gupta Amygdala Retraining Program. Those are the ones that I've used the most. They're both wonderful, and they're both somewhat different. The Ashok Gupta program is a bit more meditative, and the Annie Hopper program is a bit more regimented. So given the personality of the person I'm working with, there are people who want to be told what to do. Just say, I want to do these phrases and these gestures and over and over again, and that will reboot me. That's Annie Hopper. If you want to do something more meditative, that would be Ashok Gupta. But one of those is essential. And I remind patients especially that both Ashok and Annie say in their training tapes, you really need to do this for an hour a day in order to get maximum benefit from it. And I ask them not to listen to that <laughs> because most of my patients are cognitively impaired, can't, not that they don't want to, can't do brain work for an hour a day. And so I usually ask my patients and others who are stronger or constitutionally stronger, sure, hour a day is great. But you also have to factor into it that if you have a life, a job that you're still working at or family considerations, then an hour a day is close to impossible. Then if you feel guilty about not doing an hour a day, that's harmful to your limbic system. So I urge patients to start at 15, 20 minutes a day and only move forward at their own comfort level. I love that because that's where the bio-individuality comes in. That's where we recognize that when we get too prescriptive, we also may lose our patients. They don't feel safe. They don't feel safe coming back to us because they haven't done their work for us. So they're disappointing us, which, as you said, taps into a whole lack of safety again. So we don't want to be the person who's not providing more safety and instigating some of that stress response. So I love that you tailor it to the needs of the individual, both with the therapy, but also with the timing. That's important that if practitioners are going to recommend these modalities, that they start with giving patients permission to not do it that long and to assure them that 15 or 20 minutes a day will make a difference. And in my experience, usually within six weeks, most patients notice clear benefits of already doing that. And then many of those patients, as you know, have seen many practitioners and not been helped. Nothing has helped them. And now they're starting to feel better. And then we have a better therapeutic relationship. We're going, ah, okay, maybe you do know what you're talking about. Maybe you do have my answers. I'm, I'm more inclined to listen to your other suggestions. I then give patients what I call a smorgasbord of vagal strategies. 
And I typically start with asking them to get hold of a book by a fellow named Stanley Rosenberg called Accessing the Healing Power of the Vagus Nerve. And at the back of that book, they don't have to read the book, but if they turn immediately to what he calls part two, he gives five very simple exercises to quiet the vagus nerve and some of the cranial nerves that are directly connected to it. Only take five minutes a day. It's something everybody can do. I then point out that the fellow who wrote that book was a Danish craniosacral therapist, and he intended those exercises to be done, if possible, with cranial therapy. Another modality, if it's available locally, and my preference is the osteopathic version of cranial therapy because it's a bit more powerful and sophisticated than what is called craniosacral, which is a, forgive me, a somewhat watered-down version of the osteopathic model. So if that's possible, a treatment every three weeks is perfectly sufficient to help move that along. And again, depending on sensitivities, if patients are not overly sensitive to sound and light, then I will suggest a medical device called BrainTap, which looks like a virtual reality headset with earplugs, and it delivers different frequencies of light and sound through the eyes and ears simultaneously using the latest research in neuroplasticity to reboot the inflamed parts of the brain. The beauty of it is you can have it at home, you can own it. In COVID, you don't have to go anywhere. And the programs are short. They run about 20 minutes. So it's very doable to do that at least once a day. But the key, because the BrainTap company has so many programs, many of which are irrelevant for my patients, the key is to ask them for the programs that specifically quiet the autonomic nervous system and if sleep is an issue, which it is for many of my patients, they have some nice programs for sleep. Okay, so sleep is also, if we're looking at the right side of the matrix, is that key to this process, addressing underlying sleep issues? It's one of multiple variables that need to be addressed. Often, if you can't sleep, you can't be biochemically restored if you haven't had sleep, my patients always report a much worse day. Everything is worse when they haven't slept. Yeah. From a functional nutrition perspective, I always say if we're not sleeping, we're not pooping, and our blood sugar isn't regulated, then it's hard to build on top of that. And that needs to work in tandem with, it sounds like, all of this regulating work that we're talking about here. Yes. Knowing how important this topic is to you and how much research you've done around the modalities and working with people in clinic, is there something that you wish clinicians really knew that we're missing that you haven't already shared with us that you could share now? Because this is so complicated, if you ask the left brain to sort through all of this data, all of the information we get from the tests that we now have available, 
in functional medicine. A lot of people get stuck there, which is, okay, you've got mold and viruses and methylation issues and the mitochondria aren't working well, and maybe Lyme or a co-infection and some mycoplasma titers and, and genetically my SNPs are messed up. So you get this barrage of data and the more I have studied it and worked with it personally, the more convinced I am that at some point we have to be quiet with our patient and just sit and let the essence of what's coming into us intuitively so that our intuition will tell us better than trying to, like a computer, analyze this data. I think our intuition will go, ah, I think that's where we need to start. And I think that tends to be right more than not. Yeah, that's brilliant. Dr. Nathan, thank you so much for the work you do and for sharing your wisdom with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that as well. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.